my boss was sort of a legendary CIO, uh, Max Hopper at American Airlines, and he realized early on that online was going to be important. So we started experimenting with online reservations uh, in the late 80s on AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy, which were the online systems of the day. And you could make a reservation. It wasn't very easy. It was called Easy Saber. It was easier than Saber, which was user hostile, but it wasn't very easy. Uh, but you couldn't get a ticket. Because we were supporting travel agents, you made the reservation and then you selected a local retailer where you could get your ticket because you wanted to support them. So we did that for many years and I ran that department during one stage of my career. And then after about eight years, the travel agents woke up and said, you guys are selling bullets to the enemy. You should turn this thing off. You support travel agents and eventually this is going to kill us. Of course they were right. Um, and our CEO, Bob Crandall said, no, let's keep it going. We're the best positioned company to do this. Give it to Jones. He's now CIO. He's over in IT. He used to be a travel agent. We'll hide it over there. <laughs> so I had it. It was 10 people. And the first question I asked is, why isn't it on the Internet? The Internet had just been deregulated in 96. Before that, you couldn't do business on the Internet. It was a governmental sponsorship. So we, we put it on the Internet, and it took off like a weed in the spring. Um, because it was on the Internet, we now controlled the UI as opposed to having to look like AOL or look like CompuServe. Um, and we knew a lot about travel, so we built a much better UI. And we were still in the beginning sending tickets to travel agents, and that didn't work very well. They, they didn't know where they came from. They didn't know what to do with them. They thought they were from some evil force in the sky. So we eventually said, I said to my boss, we have to become a travel agent. And that was controversial, obviously, because we were competing with our channel. But again, you know, the, the guys in America were pretty far-seeing, and they said, yeah, go do that. Somebody's going to do it. We'll take the heat. So we became a travel agency, and uh, it took off like crazy. Um, our growth was exponential. You know, everybody thought that travel wouldn't be very big on the Internet. Wall Street wasn't a fan. They were into commerce of other kinds. Travel is larger than the next three categories of commerce on the internet combined. It is far and away the biggest. So it really took off, I think principally because prices change so quickly. You need to look on the internet to get the right price. Um, images can be shown on the internet. I actually see what I'm buying uh, rather than a word picture painted by a travel agent. Reviews are available. There are a whole bunch of reasons why travel is the right product. Yes, travel is the right product for the internet, or at least that's the core argument of this episode's Webmaster's guest. His name is Terry Jones, and he makes a pretty good case. After all, the internet clearly disrupted the travel industry as much, if not more, than any other industry in the world, and the result is one of the largest and most lucrative digital verticals on the planet. But amazingly, unlike a lot of web industries, the online travel industry didn't come along to displace the incumbent. As you heard Terry mention, he was actually working inside of American Airlines. That's where he helped launch one of the biggest and most familiar names in the online travel space, Travelocity. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Uh-huh. 
Hello there and welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast where we explore online entrepreneurship by talking with some of the digital age's most impactful and successful innovators. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. On this episode, I decided I'd continue exploring the topic we began in our previous episode. That was episode number 96 with Steve Koffer, founder of TripAdvisor. It was the first time we dipped our toe into the travel space. Now we're diving all the way in with Terry Jones. He worked at American Airlines where he helped launch Travelocity, one of the most popular and successful early online travel agencies. And if that weren't enough, he also helped launch Kayak.com, another one of the most popular websites for booking travel online. That's a pretty impressive track record, and we're going to hear all about it. But before we can do that, I need to take a minute to thank our sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you with the help and support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, content websites, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work from anywhere digital business you can think of. If you happen to have one of those lying around and you're thinking of selling it, be sure to contact Latonas. Their team of experienced brokers can help you figure out how to get your company sold for a great price. Or if you're in the market to buy an internet business, Latonas can help you too. In fact, just head on over to their website where you'll see tons of listings for all the businesses they're currently helping to sell. That website, by the way, is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. I guess we should start this episode by asking the obvious question first. How does one guy manage to help launch not one, but two of the most important and popular travel companies in history? The answer, it turns out, is to be in the travel industry for a long, long time. (laughs) Well, I will say that I've been in the travel business for 50 years. Uh, You know, I started my career as a travel agent. Uh, I spent a year after college, I thought I was going to Vietnam. And uh, I had a low draft number, but I got rejected for the draft. I didn't know what I was going to do. And my college roommate, dad, was a pilot, so he had a free pass. And he said, I'm going around the world. And so three of us spent a year going around the world. Great, great postgraduate education. I highly recommend it. When I came back, I said, you know, I want to get in the travel business. So much to my father's chagrin, I went to school at night and learned how to be a travel agent. Um, Six months in, that took me to my first startup which was a travel company focused on Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Did that for five years, turned it into the 20th largest agency, 50th largest agency in the United States. And then I jumped to a computer company selling computers to travel agents. And that company was acquired by American Airlines. So suddenly I was inside American and uh, in marketing and later in IT, I worked my way up to CIO Uh, We'll get more into this story, but when I was CIO, we started Travelocity.com. I did that for seven years. Later, I jumped uh, and with a bunch of guys started another travel company called Kayak.com. And since that time, I've been a speaker, an author, a consultant, uh, done a couple more startups that we can talk about in the travel space. So, And of all things, my daughter turned out to be a physical travel agent, which is shocking to me. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I guess that is a a little shocking. 
but let's talk for a moment about why that's so shocking, because it's quite possible a lot of listeners won't even really appreciate just what a travel agent does or how much Travelocity helped completely obliterate the industry. Could you give some insights into what travel agents did before the internet? Sure. Um, you know, I went to school at night to learn how to write tickets by hand, to learn how to price tickets because all the pricing was done by hand. All the reservations were made by phone. Uh, all my itineraries were typed on a typewriter. And actually, I made reservations when I ran my startup to Russia by telegram. I mean, because that's what the Russians wanted. So that's how old I am, right? Um, I'd seen telegraphy in movies, but I never actually used one. I actually used computers in college. Um, so it was, uh, there were 45,000 travel agents in the United States. They were needed to distribute tickets because airlines didn't want to have an office in every small town. And in those days, prices were regulated. Uh, every airline charged the same price for the same flight. Um, first class and coach. And it worked until the Carter administration where airline fares were deregulated. Then we got lots of price competition. Nobody knew what the prices were. And the airlines began putting computers into travel agencies. And I actually worked in the division of American Airlines that did that, became a over billion dollar business inside America. So that really changed travel agencies and then, of course, and we'll talk more about it when the Internet came along, that eliminated travel agencies, but only about half of them. Uh, believe it or not, there's still about 18,000 travel agents in the United States, uh, mostly doing business travel and high-end leisure. And how did you get involved in computers? Uh, because, of course, that wouldn't have been nearly as popular back when you were in school, right? Right. Well, you know, I, I did use computers in college, but it was key punch and it was one computer and you submit your job and get it back the next day in your mailbox. And that was your physical mailbox. You had to go pick up the printout. Um, then I got into computers when my travel agency was automated. So I started using mainframe computers to make reservations and mini computers to write tickets. I got fascinated by that. I went to work for a mini computer company that sold computers to travel agents. We sold that company to American Airlines. And then I was in the Sabre division, which was involved in computerizing travel agents, later moved up and ran applications development and eventually became chief information officer of American Airlines. We had one of the biggest computer systems in the world. Uh, we automated 25 airlines, including American. Uh, so I lost my hair running the Sabre system and keeping all those airlines running and keeping all those travel agents running. That was all mainframe computing. Later, we added 50,000 PCs. And along the way, uh, the web came along in 1996. And so we started doing reservations on the Internet. So I've been kicking around with that for a long time. My last company was an AI company. And this week I've been working uh, closely with a startup that I'm advising on how to use chat GPT uh, with airline bookings. So a long way from telegraphy. Just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, Sabre was a system for handling bookings just for American or... No, uh, when we deployed into travel agents, we put all these computers out there. In those days, every airline computer could book anybody because they created this big interline system. Remember, airlines are regulated. Only TWA and Delta flew to Kansas City. Only American and United flew to L.A. 
So if you wanted to move people around, you had to be able to book. So they built an integrated system. And those systems still exist, some of them. Uh, the Sabre system still exists. It's the, it's the second largest in the world. It's an independent company. It has several billion dollars of sales. Uh, there's a huge one in Europe called Amadeus, which was built by Air France, Lufthansa, SAS, and Iberia. And that's a multi-billion dollar, very successful booking engine, which is, is the engine behind today Expedia and booking and Travelocity and all the travel agents who were left. Uh, most of those bookings are still made that way. It just takes a tremendous amount of processing power, and it's been too expensive for people to build alternatives. And so American-owned Sabre and then Travelocity spun out of Sabre. Is that right? Right. And then Sabre spun out of American uh, and is now an independent company, as is Amadeus. And they've both gone public and private a couple of times. <laughs> Did Travelocity spin out of Sabre while it was still under American or had Sabre already split or what was going on there? Uh, when it was still under American, actually, the, the the same week I was going public, all of a sudden the chairman of American decided to spin Sabre. So we were both spinning the same week. All of a sudden, all the Goldman Sachs guys disappeared from my limo and went over because Sabre was a much bigger IPO. And we were doing a tax-free spin from a company who was attempting to do a tax-free spin that had never been done before. And our corporate structure was designed in the Goldman Sachs laboratory, uh, which n was tax-efficient and no one understood. I could never explain our multiple companies in the Cayman Islands to, uh, to Wall Street. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And then eventually Sabre took it back, and, and then they sold it to Expedia. So Expedia now owns Travelocity, and they also own another competitor who came along called Orbitz. So the airlines got together and they created a project uh, that was known by, I think it was BCD Consulting as Travelocity Terminator. Um, and they built this thing, which should have been illegal as hell because the airlines got together to build it and they kept lowest price on their own website. And we complained to Congress. I went and met the president uh, they went, well, it's airlines. You know, we don't really care. So they let them build that because the airlines not only wanted to control distribution, but they wanted to get in on the IPO mania of the dot-com bubble. Eventually, the airlines sold sold out, uh, became a public company, and later uh, it was sold also to Expedia. And then Priceline, in, in a sort of a magical transformation, uh, bought a smaller company called Booking.com. Booking.com had done an amazing job of aggregating hotel content in Europe and really did a super job with that. And that catapulted Priceline's market cap uh, to be larger than several of the largest airlines combined uh, because they just got a lock on hotel booking and did very well. So today, it's Booking.com and Expedia are the, the big dogs. But for context, what did the competition look like back when you were first launching Travelocity? How many other people or companies were trying to put travel online at the time? There was uh, one real small company called PC Travel or something. Nobody really big. Nobody had much funding. So we had a lot of money at, Amer at Sabre. We also had the mainframe. So we had the source of the data. So basically, we were lipstick on a pig. You know, we, we built a UI on top of what was already there. 
Uh, we had to make a lot of changes. I mean, for hotels, for example, Sabre didn't have any images. So we had to go out and get images. Now, in the beginning, you couldn't send images over the Internet anyway, so it didn't much matter. But fairly quickly, speeds went up. We had to do a lot of work. Um, it was really us and Expedia, and then Priceline came along. Uh, Priceline was sort of fourth. Uh, there was another company called Preview Travel, who was uh, eventually became third place. And we got locked in this battle with Expedia, and we were terrified that they were going to build travel into the browser. During that period, they were building many services into uh, IE. And we said, man, this, you know, they'll kill us if it's, if it's built in the browser. We were built into Netscape, who was the largest browser at the time, but IE eclipsed them fairly quickly. So we didn't know what was going to happen. So we went out and did big deals with AOL. Uh, which cost us a huge amount of money to buy our way into AOL, big deal with Yahoo, big deal with Netscape, to try to compete uh, with Expedia, which was growing so fast. Now, eventually, for antitrust reasons, they didn't build into the browser, but they did build a, a huge amount of traffic with Expedia. And we bought, in order to get the AOL business, we bought Preview Travel, who had the AOL business. And that was a reverse merger that took us public. So we became, Travelocity became a public company, still majority owned by American Airlines at the time. Eventually, the whole Sabre division was spun out of American Airlines. So we were, um, became more independent. And then long story short, Sabre, after about four years, decided they wanted full ownership of Travelocity. They didn't like the direction I was taking the company, but I had to manage it for the shareholders, not for them. Um, and I thought I was doing that. Uh, they wanted it back, so they took it private. Um, and in a in a great entrepreneurial story, um, you know, I'd worked very hard, and we can talk more about this to decouple Travelocity from American and Saber. There were a lot of reasons that building an entrepreneurial company inside a huge company is very hard. I wrote a book about it uh, called On Innovation, and when they brought it back. You know, the company was worth about a billion and a half. Eventually, they sold it for $280 million to Expedia about five years later. They completely destroyed it because they put marketing back with marketing and accounting with accounting and IT with IT. There was no spirit anymore, and they killed it. Big corporations do that. You know, it's like an elephant stepping on a mosquito. They didn't really notice they were doing that. So I definitely do want to hear more about your experiences growing a billion-dollar company inside of another huge company, uh, because as you mentioned, that's really hard to do. But first, I know you mentioned also being involved in the founding of Kayak, which is, of course, this other hugely important online travel company. Could you maybe give some of that story, too? I guess you clearly decided to stay in the travel space, huh? I did. I became a, a consultant and a, and a speaker, um, and I started speaking on innovation and creativity. And, and I started working at General Catalyst Partners in Boston as an EIR, and uh, I was looking at various travel investments for them. And we saw this company called Sidestep, and they were a browser plug-in that when you were searching, say, Expedia, they would go out and bring up prices from orbits and Travelocity. So it was starting to do price comparison and in real time because most travelers would search 10 to 30 sites looking for the best price. It was a you know squirrel looking for the right nut. 
And they, they, people still do that. It's a waste of time, but they do it. So we like that idea, but we didn't like a browser plugin. And we didn't particularly like the management of the company. So rather than investing, the partner, Joel Cutler at, at General Catalyst said, look, I'll fund this. And you be chairman and we'll go out and find a great CEO and CTO. And we did. Found a great CEO who came out of Orbitz and a great CTO who came from Intuit. Um, and we started a company called Kayak.com. And the point of Kayak.com was, you know, we were converting, I don't know, 6 7% of arrivals at Travelocity into bookings. And for e-commerce, that's pretty good. But you think about that, if Walmart had a backdoor 90% the size of the front door and everybody walked out without anything, you know, their stock would crash. I mean, the, the e-commerce model is nuts in terms of how few people you convert. So we said, well, where are they all going? Because most of them want to travel. Well, it turned out most of them were going direct. They would, they would use Travelocity as a price comparison engine. Then they would go buy from Marriott or American. So we said, well, why don't we build a site that does that? So Kayak was a, a vertical search engine, not a travel agency. So we searched everything. And when you click, you could buy. You could choose where you bought from. So you could buy from American or you could buy. It, initially, we didn't have the online travel agencies. They didn't want to be on there. Uh, but but we had all the suppliers. And we said to the suppliers, look, this is much better for you. And it's better than Google because we're not going to drop you on the home page. We're going to drop the consumer on the last page. He's already picked his flight. All he has to do is put in his payment and his name and he's done. So our clicks are going to be much higher converting than a Google click. And they said, that's awesome. We like that a lot. But by the way, we're not going to pay you anything. So they resisted, many of them, paying us anything. They didn't want to create a new intermediary in the world. Uh, but our, our investors were resolute, and we sent them traffic, lots of traffic. And one day we turned it off. And they called up and said, where's the traffic? And we said, same place your money is, dude. Nowhere. So they paid. So I think we invented ransomware, actually. Uh, it was before ransomware existed, but... Um, it you know, there's a great quote that says, if the startup gets the distribution before the incumbent gets the innovation, the game is over. And that's what happened here. We got the distribution. People loved us. We, had, we were also way faster. We had a minimalist UI. Um, you could book very, very quickly. We had tons of filters that the other guys didn't have. So you could sort by time or class or first arrival, whatever you wanted, and our mobile app was killer. So uh, it, it was a, a new thing. Some people still thought we were a travel agency. They didn't get the difference. But we didn't care. As long as they clicked, we made money. And we had advertising as well. And because of our model, we didn't care if you clicked on an ad or clicked on a flight. We got paid either way. So it was very successful. I was chairman there for eight years. Um, and eventually, we went public for $1.7 billion, I think. And eventually sold it to Booking.com for 1.8 or 9. So it was a, it's a great company with a great exit. Uh, the CEO is still there. It's still doing well. And, and Booking.com has been smart enough to leave it alone, unlike what Sabre did to Travelocity. Uh, and so it's, it's done very well. Would you mind talking a bit about the difference in your role as CEO of Travelocity versus being chairman of Kayak, just to help illustrate how those two things operate differently in a startup environment? 
Well, it was really different. I mean, these guys didn't need a lot of help. They were smart, dedicated, and quite arrogant. <laughs> and they had a lot to be arrogant about. They were successful. But so, uh, you know, for example, they wanted to go internationally. We encouraged them to do that. And they said, oh, we can run an international business out of Connecticut. We don't have to put people around the world. And uh, the guy from Expedia was on the board, previous from Expedia and me. And the VC said, you're completely wrong. That will fail. And they said, we're doing it anyway. And they failed. Um, <laughs> and they eventually changed. So sometimes they would listen to us. Uh, sometimes they wouldn't. I think later the CEO uh, thanked me a lot for helping them as they prepared to and eventually went public because I'd been through that, uh, not not only with Travelocity, but that time on the board of people like Overture and and trust and other companies who've gone public. So I had a lot of experience with that. Uh, and it's much harder to run a public company than it seems. Um, so, uh, you know, I tried to, uh, I, I fed them lots of ideas and counseled them. And, you know, sometimes they listen and sometimes they wouldn't. But that's okay. That That's what, you know, being a chairman is all about. And being a chairman of a, of a VC-backed company uh, when you're the independent is quite different than being chairman of a public company in that the VCs really control what's going on when you're private. So, uh, but we had great, we had Mike Moritz from Sequoia and we had Joel and we had others, you know, Mike's legendary in the Valley. And they were so sage and wonderful in terms of helping guide this company to success. And we eventually decided to go public and then the market went down and we, we couldn't go public because our last round uh, was higher than our current valuation. And there were all these articles, you know, Kayak has engine failure, Kayak stuck on the runway, blah, blah, blah. And they just said, yeah, just wait. Market will come back. It's okay. Uh, we'll get our money. And eventually they had a great payout. So it, it was an interesting, uh, interesting to be chairman of that kind of entity versus CEO. It's kind of funny. You said it's much harder to run a public company than it seems. And, well, I never really thought it seemed easy to run a public company. So uh, what does that mean? Is running a public company ridiculously hard? Like, what is much harder than something that already seems really challenging? I heard uh, Kramer was saying some nice things about Tesla the other day and some very bad things about Ford. And he said, you know, Ford left $2 billion on the table last quarter, and they've got to make the quarter. The CEO of Ford is saying, no, I have to beat Tesla. You know, I'm going to invest. And but Wall Street, Wall Street wants you to juggle chainsaws and, you know, do the same thing. They'll give a startup like Tesla 10 years to get there. But if you're a public company, changing yourself is, is so difficult. I mean, hey, hey, at Travelocity, we got the idea of Kayak. And we said, could we go be that? And we said, no, we'd have to fire 80% of our people, totally change our business model. And Wall Street would never let us do that. They wouldn't understand. So, uh, you know, you're, you're really doing very different things. You've got all this reporting going on, all these people who are just in charge of making investors happy. And you have to make investors happy, any investor. You have to make VCs happy. But VCs understand the kind of pressures you're under and are looking for different things than Wall Street investors are necessarily looking for. Like what? What would you say is the biggest difference between running a private venture-backed company versus running a public company? It's a lot about failure. Most corporations don't like to fail at anything. They always have to make a profit on everything they do. And that's just not the real world. You know, look at SpaceX. 
I mean, their products blow up. <laughs> you know, and they're they're okay with it. People understand, you know, spacecraft blow up, but they they don't understand maybe if you're in a different business that you tried something that failed. But smart businesses like Intuit and others celebrate failure. You know, it's it's I say it's about killing projects, not killing people. So Aaron's project failed. Don't fire Aaron unless maybe it's his fourth failure. Okay, then send him to the farm club. You can't do this. But usually it's the idea was wrong or the implementation was wrong or your research was wrong. What did you learn? Why do sports teams watch game films? Not to assess blame, to ensure victory next time. Uh, and, and it's so critically important to be able to experiment and fail. Um, I remember the first time I, I, I had a million-dollar project in Travelocity to put video on CD-ROM so we could add it to to uh, Travelocity because you couldn't send video over the Internet at 1,200 baud. And I spent a million dollars working with IBM to get those uh, DVDs out into the stores, and I lost a million bucks. It was a total failure. And I had to go to my boss, who at the time was the CFO of American Airlines, he was a, a tough guy. And, you know, he said, what did you learn? And that word spread like wildfire. You know, Terry didn't get fired. Uh, he asked what you learned. Now, that would not have happened on the American Airlines side of the business be- because that was a big operational engine where they knew what they were doing and they didn't experiment very much. You don't experiment with airplanes, right? You can't fail. You don't experiment with the Sabre system. You know, we were in charge of Weight and balance, getting planes in the air. You don't experiment with that. Or you, you find a way to do that in the lab. But with the web, it's the Wild West, you know. And, and, and the other thing we learned is that customers were very forgiving. Um, you know, travel agents, if Sabre went down for one minute, went insane. But consumers, you got to understand, sites went up and down. They weren't always perfect. Everything was beta. But it sure was easier than doing things the old way. And as long as it's better than the old way, you know, people will put up with it. So you're saying quick experimentation and failure, that's a a big part of the VC in Silicon Valley model, which, of course, is true. And so what does that mean in terms of where things are headed in the digital travel industry? Uh, Surely there's still lots of experimentation going on. Do you still keep up with things? Where is the industry going next? Well, you know, the next thing I did was kind of interesting, and it was a failure, uh, so we should talk about it. I got a call from Ginny Rometty, the chairman of IBM, who I knew from speaking, and she said, could you come and teach IBM Watson about travel? And that sounded interesting, and I said, well, you pay for my trip? And she said, no. I'm like, you know, maybe there's a pony in there somewhere, so come on up. And so I did some consulting for them. I did some evangelism. I met the head of Watson. And he left IBM to start a bunch of AI companies. And he said, would you like to start a travel company? So IBM invested and we started a company. And our goal was to allow people to use natural language search. So you could say, I want to go to Singapore. I need a hotel on Emerald Hill with an awesome pool, leaving out of New York December 5th, under 10 grand. And the next screen will give you the answer. Now, you can't do that on any travel site today. And we would also, we curated millions of images. So we'd show you a picture of the pool, not the front of the hotel. And we'd show you a review of the pool. Uh, Not, you didn't have to look through 10,000 reviews. 
And we built that with the tools available in 2014. Um, and we ran the company, I think, for four and a half years or so. It was a B2B-focused company because initially they wanted to be B2C. But I said, look, the data set is too big. We can't ingest the world. These tools aren't powerful enough. We have to have a small data set. So give me all the Hilton hotels and I can do this. Uh, or give me Austin, Texas, I can do this. Uh, the problem was selling B2B, businesses don't take risk. Nobody wanted to change their UI. Um, we eventually turned into a, a advertising company building UI-based ads, but it was too late. We ran out of money and, and the company closed. But what's interesting is that, that I am working with a startup today who, as of yesterday, uh, was, was making bookings in test using chat GPT. So you could say, you know, exactly the sentence I gave before, uh, and it could make that booking. I think now that will be done. I think that there's enough pressure out there that you'll see the big OTAs do this. Uh, Expedia booking will have natural language search. Airbnb actually did that for a while. So I think it's going to be an interesting arms race and hopefully travel will change because the UI of Travelocity in 1996 is the UI of Expedia today. Where do you want to go and what day? But that's not what you're thinking. You think, yeah, I want to go to the Caribbean. It's snowing. Uh, my wife wants a spa and I want golf. And now you're the squirrel looking for the acorn. You know, it's, you have to pick a, you have to pick an island. You have to pick an airport. Then you pick a hotel. Then you look through a thousand pictures to find out if the spa is a building or a hot tub. It's hard. Unless you use a great travel agent like my daughter. <laughs> we'll do that for you. <laughs> that's a that's a good advertisement for her. Uh, we're we're getting back to where we started. I, I like that a lot. But before we wrap up, I just want to return to one final thing you mentioned earlier, and that's the idea of how to build a successful startup basically inside of an enormous business without getting it killed under the weight of bureaucracy. I realize, of course, that's a huge topic. But is there any chance you could kind of give us the most important points of how that's possible and how you did it? Yeah, we worked hard to build a, a culture where it was okay to fail. That was a different culture than the big company had. Um, we worked hard on our team. I brought in a lot of people from outside the company. I had to fight to do that. Usually I have to hire inside. I wanted people from Microsoft and other startups. So I worked hard on the team. I moved out of the building. Uh, so I could separate myself and create our own culture. We got rid of IT. We got rid of purchasing. We kept legal because we made a lot of mistakes, and they they saved saved us. So it was it was really about culture and team, and getting everybody focused on Travelocity, not their own department. Because in the beginning, I had people who still reported to marketing. They still reported to finance, and they were one foot in each camp. Eventually, I said, "We can't run this way. You have to let me run it as a company." And that was very controversial. In fact, at one point, we had a big debate because we were losing money about we should sell Travelocity, and they could have made a couple hundred million. And we actually had a Harvard-style debate about it. I was not allowed to participate. Um, luckily, my the Travelocity team won. But that got all the crap out on the table, and people now were supportive of it. They understood why we kept it. I asked my boss many years later, what would you have done if they'd said sell? He said, well, I wouldn't have sold, but I don't know how I would have pulled that off. 
you know, it was, uh, uh, but he, he wanted to have that discussion uh, to get everybody behind it because a lot, I, I met the guy who runs now the most profitable division of Valero oil, which is cooking oil. They get cooking oil and they make gasoline out of it, right? And inside, everybody thought he was crazy. Your oil doesn't come out of the ground. What's wrong with you? His wife told me, oh, yeah, he was vilified. Uh, but they kept at it, and now they're the most profitable division because they don't have to drill. And so it's very hard in big companies to pull this off. And uh, so read my book on innovation, available on Amazon. And then my book, Disruption Off, talks about really 10 disruptive technologies from, from big data to 3D printing and how people are disrupting markets with them. And then the second half for corporations is what do you do? How do you compete? How do you become the disruptor? Because disruption and innovation are just two sides of the same coin. The only reason you call it a disruption is because you didn't do it. If you did it, it would be an innovation. You'd be proud of it. But it's a damn disruption. And corporations have the people, the assets, the brand, the warehouse, the distribution. They have everything a startup would kill for. They just don't take risks. And there it is, the biggest difference between enormous companies and startups. It's the key to disruption and disruptive innovation. The big companies are the ones with all the resources, and because they have so many resources, they can't afford to take risks. In contrast, the smallest companies, well, they have none of the resources of the big companies. And sure, they'd love to have all those resources, but since they don't, they don't have anything to lose, which means they can also afford to take big risks, which is exactly what they do. Terry was part of both sides. He helped the incumbent roll out their version of online travel with Travelocity. Then he helped start Kayak, something he thought about doing as the incumbent but couldn't risk pivoting the business model. It's an incredible amount of different experiences to have in one industry. And, well, I just want to thank Terry Jones for taking the time to share them with us. If you'd like to thank him too or see what he's working on now, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Terrell B. Jones. We're on Twitter too, at Webmasters Pod. And I'm on Twitter at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also create lots of articles and other content about startups and entrepreneurship, which you can find on my website. It's AaronDinan.com. Quick thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for their continued support of the Webmasters Project. If you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to check out latonas.com. And a thanks to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for helping pull together this episode. For more of his excellent engineering work and more of our incredible guests, be sure to check out Webmasters wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, maybe leave a nice review and subscribe. That way you get the next episode as soon as it's released. We'll have that out for you very soon. Until then, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. Goodbye.